Amen. God, we pray that we see your fire again, Lord. We pray that, that we truly will get on our knees and we'll pray for forgiveness. We pray that you will give us boldness and courage and give us hurt our hearts for the lost of this world so that we can go and tell them that we've got the answer. God, we pray that you do come to America again. God, we have, we have gradually pulled away from you. And I pray that we as a country, and again, we as a church, will go back to you, come back to you. And Lord, that we would see your hand in our lives and in our country again. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Sorry about all that. Boy. Technology, huh? Children's church. Yes. Kids first. Let's go with kids first junior. First, y'all can head on out. While they're heading out, take your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 25. I, this, isn't, uh, this isn't a verse I'd ever heard preached on until last week in New Orleans at the, uh, at the pastor's conference. Um, a pastor by the name of David Platt preached on it. Um, as a matter of fact, I don't know that I knew it was there, that it had ever registered on my radar. I'm sure I've read it because I've read John a number of times, but it just never clicked. Uh, we are going to get to, I told you last week, the church's report card. We're going to look at the first three chapters of Revelation, but we're going to look th at those uh, next week. We're going to start, start that next week. This morning, we are going to be discussing a lot of what we were singing about and praying about this morning. The fact that we want revival in our churches. We want revival in the country. I don't think there's anyone here this morning that can look around and say, we as a country, or even we as a church, are where we need to be. We want revival. But how are we going to get there? You can read all kinds of books on it. Um, there, they, they, there are people that will say that you need to do this for revival, and they're probably right, or this other thing for revival. And they're right. You can spur revival. You can provide a, a, a conduit or a means for revival. We're going to do that at the end of July. We're having an engage week that I'm going to talk about at the end. We're going to have a group of college students come and lead revival all that week, preaching, leading the worship, doing children's and youth activities and, and other things during that time, ending up with a block party. That is a means to encourage revival. We can, I can preach on it, which I'm going to do. Uh, I, can, I can go over it over and over. We can talk about it in our Bible studies. But revival will never happen in our church, in our town, in our country, until it happens in the hearts of the people that are sitting right here this morning and every Sunday morning. So this morning, we are going to examine our hearts. Before we get into the church's report card, 
Because once we understand, I believe, hopefully, as we go through the first three chapters of Revelation and we look at our report card and we begin to, to diagnose, to evaluate how are we doing as a church, I pray that we'll begin, begin to see some things that we need to do, that we need to change. See how we should be, see how we are, and, and rejoice in that. But see where we need to go. And I'm not talking about location where we need to go. I'm not pro talking about programs, what we need to do. I'm talking about how we need to change our hearts. But before we get there, before we look at the church as a whole, we need to look at ourselves individually. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, this theme, this ache, has been going on since Dr. Gonzalez came and preached on June 3rd. If you were here, you know he preached a phenomenal message on Matthew chapter 7, 13 through 23. And the title of his message was, Making Sure Christ Knows You. This passage in John asks the same question, just in a different way. And that's the title this morning, Does Jesus Believe You? I'm asking the same thing Dr. Gonzalez asked. I'm asking the same thing that we were asked probably six of the 12 times. I told you last week at the convention during the, the pastor's conference, the, the preaching conference is what it is. We heard 12 different messages. Probably six of those asked something similar to this. It's just something that's been rolling over in our hearts for the last month. And so today... You're getting it. The deacons already got it this morning a little bit. Uh, told them where my heart was and, and what's happening. And, and I do hope you wore your steel-toed boots. Actually, I hope you didn't. I hope you wore flip-flops um, so you can feel it all. John chapter 2, 23 through 25. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not any, need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me say up front, I'm not mad, okay? If this sermon comes across and y'all are going, oh, he must be mad at us. No, no, I'm not. I hurt. I hurt for me. Y'all, this starts with me. I have to ask myself the question, does Jesus believe me? And there are plenty of times in my life where I, I look at what's going on, what I've done, what I'm involved in, and I say, how can Jesus believe me about my faith in him? I believe him. Does he believe me today? So I'm doing this because God's called me to it. And I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. The question that we're asking in this passage is, does Jesus believe you? We're going to look at three things. We're going to first look first at this warning against inadequate belief. And we're going to spend a good bit of time on this part, where Jesus is warning us to not have partial belief. P belief that only is enough to condemn us that much more, if possible, to hell. If I go to a swimming pool and I stick my toe in the pool, am I in the pool? Yeah. But am I swimming? No. Do I have a relationship with the water? No. 
I've, I've tested it. I've tried it. Hmm, temperature's all right, but I'm not in the pool. That's what we're looking at this morning. Do you have a toe in, or are you all in? And Jesus is saying here, if you got a toe in, I don't believe you. If you're all in, I believe you. We're going to look at Nicodemus as an example of this inadequate belief. Now this is going to be different probably from how you've heard Nicodemus preached. And I will not tell you at the end of this message that Nicodemus didn't go to heaven. I don't know. I'll tell you what John says and what evidence we have when, as we talk about Nicodemus. And then we're going to look at the Samaritan woman as an opposite example. As someone who had the belief that Jesus was looking for. So first, this warning. When Jesus says here, or when, I'm sorry, when John says, they saw his signs, they trusted in his name, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. That, that's the same word. It's the same word in the Greek. It's got a little different tense, but it's, it's the same word. This is often the phrase that's used for saving faith. When John talks about belief uh, that saves people, this is the word he uses. But in this case, obviously, from what he says, he does not mean that. Because Jesus says... Or John says of Jesus, he would not entrust himself to them. They believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe their belief. And that's hard for us. This is, this is difficult for us to grasp. I've been working on this, well, really for two weeks since, since we came back. I looked, after the, I heard the sermon on it, I looked for contradictory notes on it. I looked for somebody to say that's not what he meant. And I found a couple. But I found one guy in particular who is top three, four, five scholars of John in the world. He's one of our Southern Baptist Seminary professors. And as I read him, I just got more and more, at the time, deflated. I was like, oh, man, that's what he means. He actually means that I can believe, but not enough to save me. But isn't that what Dr. Gonzalez preached to us from Matthew? I call out to you, God. I, I did things in your name, God. I did, I, I did, I did, I did. And Jesus says, I never knew you. You believed a little bit, but you didn't have salvation. But God, we can believe, right? I mean, all we have to do is believe. Doesn't James tell us even the demons believe and tremble? It's more than believing that Jesus existed. As we're going to see, it's more than just believing that he was a good teacher, a good man, a prophet, even somebody from God. There's something that happens in our hearts when we believe unto salvation. And we're going to see that this morning. So, normally this meant saving faith, but not this time. The scripture tells us that the, the people trusted based on signs. And that those signs, that belief, that trust was inadequate. Why? Jesus never says, John never tells us why Jesus did not believe their believing. We never hear from Jesus about that. We never hear from John about it. We can speculate. Maybe they were looking at Jesus for what he could do for them. They saw, oh, I can get healed. Great. And he did, and he healed them. Oh, he can provide this or that. 
very possibly they liked a good show. Man, you know, the, the circus is in town. Jesus is here turning wine to water. That was the, the uh, only miracle recorded in John so far. He drove the, the people out of the temple. Wow, that was impressive. Did you see what Jesus did? All the gossip, blah, blah, blah. You see what he did downtown? Maybe they liked a good show. Maybe their friends told them about it. They said, oh, okay, yeah. Oh, he is impressive. I like that. Yeah, I believe that guy. Yeah, he, he says some good things. Yeah, he does some impressive stuff. Ultimately, though, we don't know why their belief was inadequate. We just know that it wasn't. Jesus knew that they would fall away. Jesus knew that their heart was not in their belief. You know, ultimately, everybody would fall away at the cross. Understand this. At the cross, there would be no one there who believed in Jesus. They would all have run away. Peter, who will say eventually, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. No doubt about what Peter believed about Jesus on the night of the crucifixion ran. Didn't just run, denied him three times. Jesus, I know you. Jesus, I believe you. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, I don't know him. They all fell away. Jesus' own brothers we see in John 7, 5, they didn't believe him. His family didn't believe him. His town didn't believe him. So they all turned away from him at some point. I'm telling you this to get you to understand that everyone's belief was partial at this point. But that's no excuse. That's no excuse for what comes later. Jesus knew they would fall away. Jesus knew the belief was impartial. And this is a theme throughout John. John Brink comes back to this over and over and over. And I'm just going to show you three places. And you can flip there. I don't have the words on the screen. Uh, we see insufficient belief in chapter 8, verses 30 through 59. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But verse 30 of chapter 8 says, As he was saying these things, many believed him. You see that? Many believed him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. Notice this. He's talking to the people who believed. If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you continue in my word, remember that. If you continue in my word. But then it goes on. They argue. The ones who believed. They argue. Verse 34, and Jesus answers them. Verse 39, they argue, and Jesus answers them. Verse 41, they argue, but Jesus answers them in 42. Verse 48, and the Jews responded to him. Who? The Jews who believed responded to him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? You want to tell me in verse 30 that saving faith? The people who believed just a few minutes later saying, you've got a demon. He refutes it, Jesus does in 49. 52, they argue, we know you have a demon because Abraham's dead. Are you greater than Abraham? 
Jesus answers them. 57, the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus hits them with the most powerful thing he could say. I assure you, before Abraham was, I am. He just called himself Yahweh God. And they say in, at 59, John tells us, at that they picked up stones to throw at him. Now, do you want to tell me that in verse 30, that was saving belief? Did Jesus believe their belief? No. Insufficient belief there. We have no true belief. Turn to chapter 12, a couple pages over, verse 37. Twelve thirty-seven. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe him. Who are these? Who's they? It's the same they it has been all along. The ones who believed at the beginning in, verse, in chapter 2. The ones who believed but argued in chapter 8. And now John is clear. Even though he had performed so many signs in their presence, they did not believe them. believe him. But this was to fulfill the prophecy, we're told, of Isaiah. And he goes on. Insufficient belief, no true belief. And then in verses 42 and 43 of chapter 12, we see that there was no change. We see why it wasn't true belief. Verse 42, nevertheless, many did believe in him. Hear that? Many did believe but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him. So they would not be banned from the synagogue. What was their problem? Verse 43, for they loved praise from men more than praise from God. So let me set the foundation here and tell you, we can have a belief. We can have just enough. We can have our toe in the water, but not be saved. We can believe a little bit about Jesus. We can be impressed with the signs. We can be impressed with Him and not be saved. So, Jesus, what's up? Thing is, Jesus knows our heart. How can we believe a little and not be saved? Because Jesus knows What's going on? See, our sinner's prayer doesn't fool him. And this is a discussion that's gone on in the convention now for a few weeks, months. Should we use the sinner's prayer? Absolutely. I think the sinner's prayer is a great way for a new Christian to understand what is happening right now in their heart. But does a sinner's prayer save you? No. And I've been guilty of this. When I was a teenager... I was going through, I got, <clears throat> excuse me, I got saved when I was nine years old. I grew up in church. I, I had no dramatic conversion experience. I had learned about Jesus since the, old, the time I was old enough to remember, old enough to listen. I knew about Jesus. At, eight, at nine years old, I believed. And I also believed that my belief was saving belief. But I didn't understand it all 
at nine years old. I grew. I was discipled. I grew up in church, and I learned what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And by the time I'm 16, 17 years old, I'm thinking, I am not the follower I'm supposed to be. Maybe I wasn't even saved at nine years old. And I can remember vividly at night, laying in my bed, saying the sinner's prayer like it was some magical formula. And lo and behold, not feeling that much better after I said this little prayer, this little incantation as I saw it. I misunderstood the point. Salvation was in my heart, not in these words I said. And I came to the understanding, came to a greater love and knowledge of Christ that I understood, yeah, I am saved. Not because of the prayer I pray. See, Jesus knows, and he is not fooled by your aisle walk. The fact that you came down some Sunday and talked to a preacher, that did not save you. He led you through a sinner's prayer. That did not save you. Jesus is not fooled by your church attendance. The fact that you're here most of the time does not tell Jesus anything about your heart. It may tell him that you're trying it may tell him that you're wanting to look good in front of other people. It may tell him a lot of things, but it's going to tell him the truth every time. So your ch church attendance does not fool him. Your proper sounding statements, the, fa the fact that you can say the right things when people ask, does not save you. You go to any Mormon church, any Jehovah's Witness missionary, and you ask them if they are saved they'll give you a proper sounding statement that you'll think, wow, they've got salvation down. But then if you start digging, if you start asking, it's not true belief. It's not belief in the perfect, sinless, only begotten Son of God. Absolutely not. So, Jesus is not fooled by what we say. Jesus knows our heart. And what he's looking for is, does he change your life? Are you different because of the salvation? Did you believe and that belief made a difference in your life? Let's look at Nicodemus. And I'm sorry that it's so small up there. I didn't, when I was making this, I didn't realize it would be that small. Maybe most of you can, can see it. But we're going to compare the two, and that's why I did it this way. I wanted you to see it. Chapter 3 picks up the story of Nicodemus. As a matter of fact, verses 23 and 25, I believe, set us up for comparing Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. There's some stuff in between there, but Jesus is, John is showing us the difference between someone who has some belief that does not save them and belief that does save them. Nicodemus, Pharisee, well-known, popular guy, teaches the law. He's well-respected, even by people like the disciples. He is not one of the, the, the firebrand meanies of, of the Pharisees. This is a guy who thinks through things. He comes to Jesus at night, we see in verse 2 of chapter 3. Now, you might say, and some have said, well, he was coming because it was cooler. Yeah, doesn't hold water. Nicodemus was most likely coming to Jesus at night, so nobody would see him. He was embarrassed to be there talking to Jesus. Because this is the same guy that is among a group that is later going to say Jesus has a demon. And Nicodemus knows their opinion of him. He is embarrassed by Jesus. He begins with flattery. 
uh, verse uh, 2. He says, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. He's come, oh, you're a great guy. I got that. I mean, you're, you're, you are obviously from God. I'll stop there, though. He comes with flattery. He comes because of what? The signs. The things that Jesus did. But then he starts asking, he asks a question. Actually, he doesn't even ask a question. If you look, it says, no one could do this unless God were with him. In verse 2. Verse 3, Jesus replied, he hadn't asked a question. But he says, I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Of course, this confuses Nicodemus. Because Jesus is answering the questions that Nicodemus isn't asking. Nicodemus, I don't want to get too deep into his motives. Maybe he was just trying to understand. Maybe he was wanting to be able to go back to the Pharisees and tell them, you know, he's not as bad as you think. Jesus goes to the heart of the issue. You are such a great teacher. You are a leader. You are big time in the church. But you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born again, born from above. Nicodemus doesn't understand. He asks a question. Notice by the end, by uh, verse 23, Nicodemus says nothing. I'm, I'm sorry, rather, uh, 21. Nicodemus says nothing. He begins with the flattery. Then he says, but how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? And Jesus explains to him, you don't understand. It's from God. Being born again, belief is from heaven. How can these things be? Five little words. Nicodemus' conversation gets smaller, or contribution gets smaller and smaller and smaller, while Jesus' gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the end of it, we don't even hear from Nicodemus anymore. It just says, verse 22, after this. It doesn't tell us what Nicodemus thought. It doesn't tell us anything else that Nicodemus said. He just goes away. We are left to infer that there's no change in Nicodemus. He doesn't say, as, as Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He doesn't say, as others who encounter Jesus and encounter the truth, I believe, he just goes away. No change. No acknowledgement of who Jesus is. And we have evidence of this. Chapter 7, verses 50 through 52. They are in conference. The Pharisees are. They're debating over Jesus. The, the, the police, the Pharisees ask the police, why haven't you brought him? The police say, no one ever spoke like this. They're kind of getting the hint. This is something big, y'all. The Pharisees responded to them, Are you fooled too? Have any of the rulers believed in him? Or any of the Pharisees as if they are the standard for belief? But this crowd, which doesn't know the law, is accursed. So he's kind of, they're, they're defaming the ones who believe. Verse 50, Nicodemus, the one who came to him previously, being one of them, said to them, our law doesn't judge a man before it hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? So, Nicodemus is almost defending. Almost defending. 
But they respond, you aren't from Galilee too, are you? They replied, investigate and you will see no prophet arises from Galilee. And then Nicodemus shuts up. I dare say we've all been in that situation where we hear something going on. We're a part of a conversation that is blasphemous, that is talking about the idiocy of church, how Christ is not this, and our religion is stupid, and faith is pointless, and we go, wow, that's, that's kind of tough, or I don't know, or something equally mealy-mouthed. That was Nicodemus. No acknowledgement of who Christ was. When he had the opportunity, right there, he could have done it. And then finally, whatever relationship Nicodemus had, he keeps a secret. Chapter 12, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 39. Jesus has been crucified. He is dead. Verse 38, after this, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus but secretly, because of his fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might remove Jesus' body. Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took his body away. 39, Nicodemus, who had previously come to him at night, also came bringing a mixture of 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe, and they buried Jesus. So even after the crucifixion, Nicodemus is still hiding the fact that at the very least he has some respect for this man. Some belief in Jesus. That's the legacy of Nicodemus. We don't hear from Nicodemus again. I don't know what happened with Nicodemus. I feel like, very likely, by the end of it all, he became a disciple of Christ. I believe that. I have no evidence of that. John intentionally, I believe, gives us no evidence of that because he is showing us that you can have belief that is not enough to save you. And here is Nicodemus as that example. But don't... Let me back up. Matthew 10.32. This is the only time I'll take you out of John. Matthew 10.32. Jesus says, actually Jesus has been sending out, is sending out the twelve, giving them instructions. Go out, and this is what you're going to do. Go to the town. Nothing is uncovered, nothing is covered that will be uncovered. Nothing hidden, is hidden that won't be well known. Don't be afraid, therefore, verse 31, you are worth more than many sparrows. Remember, he is teaching the disciples. He's telling the disciples what to do. And he says in verse 32, Therefore, here are my instructions. This is what you're supposed to do. Go tell people about me. Verse 32, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father in heaven. I'll ask this question now. I'm going to ask it later. Does your life deny Jesus before men? Does your life tell people about Jesus? Or does your life deny him? Let's look at the Samaritan woman. 
John chapter 4 begins at, uh, really begins in verse 5, the story he does. Jesus is traveling, he goes to Samaria, sits down at a well. Woman comes up, woman of Samaria comes up to draw water. We find out in verse 6 that it's about 6 in the evening. Chapter 4, verse 6, it tells us it's at 6 in the evening. Ladies always got water. They got water either in the early, early morning or the late, late night. 6 p.m. would have been basically what 6 p.m. is here during the summer. The, the ground, the town would have been baking all day. Nobody would have been out at 6 p.m. Nobody would go and draw water at 6 o'clock in the evening because you are at the tail end of the hottest part of the day at that point. Why did she go that late? Well, we find out later exactly why. Jesus tells her why. But ultimately, she is embarrassed by herself. Notice that she already has conviction of her sin. She has never met Jesus, but she knows that she has a problem. She doesn't go out when the other ladies go. She goes when nobody will be there. And then Jesus shows, uh, is sitting there. She probably ignored him, as she was supposed to do. And he says to her, give me a drink. She begins, verse 9, with humility. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. And then John tells us, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. It, it goes deeper than that, y'all. The well, because that's where Moses met his wife, and that's where uh, Jacob met his wife, the well was like the, the dating scene. Guys would go to the well in the morning and the evening to meet ladies. And it was okay because that was kind of the precedent set by the, their forefathers. But you didn't just talk to a woman without having intentions. You just didn't have a conversation with a lady if you were a man. So here Jesus is talking to a woman at a well at a time when nobody else goes to the well who is a Samaritan woman who he is not supposed to talk to. If he drinks from the jug she drew water with, he is then ceremonially unclean. Look at all the strikes against him. And she says, and she understands this, and says, who are you to talk to me? Why, why are you talking to me? She knew her place. And, and, and ladies, don't get your hackles up. I, I don't mean she knew her place as a woman. She just knew who she was in society and that this man talking to her is a complete breach of etiquette. Something's going on here. Why, how is it that you ask a drink from me, she says. Notice the difference between Nicodemus. He begins with flattery. She begins with humility. Jesus answers her questions, plus some. He, he always gives her more, but notice he answers her questions. Why, why are you talking to me, she says. He says, 
if you knew, or why are you asking me for water? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying this to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. So she, he answered the question, who are you? I'm the one that can give you water that, that lives. That's who I am. Now, let me tell you a little bit more. If you, asked, if you knew that, you'd ask me for water, not the other way around. So she asked another question, sir, um, you don't have a bucket, you can't get water, this was Jacob's well, are you greater than Jacob, are you a bigger deal than him? He dug this well so we could have water, and Jesus says, all right, I'll answer your question, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. Whoever drinks from the water I give will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him with eternal life. You think people noticed in that world when a spring started bubbling? I know y'all do. I know Russell is very fond of the two wells that he has that, that, that bubble up constantly. We notice those things in a dry and thirsty land. Do people notice that a well springs up in you, in their dry and thirsty hearts? Does he notice that? Jesus answers her questions, and then some. And she says, uh, I would love to have this water. Um, give me some, verse 15. Verse 16, he says, Jesus says, and this is where he twists it on her, go and call your husband. And come back here. And she, the lady who came at 6 p.m. when nobody else was there, who avoided crowds and couldn't understand why a man would talk to her, much less a Jewish man, says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus answers her, you sure are right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. You don't have a husband. Can you imagine her face falling? He does know me. He, he, I thought, okay, this sounded good, but he's just like everybody else. He sees my sin, and that's it. We're done. But she says in verse 19, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She continues to ask questions. Now she's kind of changing the subject. Okay, you know some stuff about me. So anyway, how's the weather? Or something. Uh, she goes on and say, says that the Jews say one thing, we say something else. And Jesus said, and I'll get to the point here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Don't worry about that stuff. But this, this clicks with her, okay? She begins to think, wait a minute. This sounds like something maybe, maybe I've heard before. I, I imagine this kind of warming sensation in her heart. That's how a lot of people describe it. I, again, I was nine when I accepted Christ. I grew up with it. But people who have never followed Christ, and for the first time, they feel his, him penetrate the coldness and the, the hardness of their heart. Talk about a warmness. I imagine that. She begins to kind of, wait a minute, something's different here. In verse 19 of chapter 4, she says, I see that you're a prophet. 
She's getting there. You see, you notice that she is at the point where Nicodemus was. She is at the point where the Jews were, where she has belief in the signs because him telling her who she is is a sign. There's no reason for him to know. She's, okay, I believe you're a prophet, a teacher, just like Nicodemus. There's a gradual change. We didn't see that from Nicodemus. Then we see acknowledgement. Jesus goes on. He tells her he is the Messiah. And in verse 25, she says, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. So after the answer about worshiping on this mountain and that mountain, she goes, okay, I know something's up now. And she doesn't come out and say, you're the Christ. But she says, you know, I know the Christ is coming. Hint, hint, Jesus. And he answers her, I am he. And then does she go on? Is it over? She's like, nice to meet you, future Messiah. I got to go take the water to my not husband. No. She has no secret relationship with Jesus. Verse 29, she goes to the town. Disciples walk up, and they're just a little bit confused, but they're smart this time. Peter even keeps his mouth shut. They don't ask any questions. Verse 29, the Samaritan woman goes into town, says, Come see a man who told me, my page turned, everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? See, she's not even sure, and she's telling people. She's got her toe in the water, and she's telling people, you know, the water feels good. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about jumping in. Uh, this, this feels nice. Do you, think, do you think this could be? And then they come back. Verse uh, 39 through 42. Now many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified, he told me everything ever I, I ever did. Verse 40, therefore when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. You see the difference between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman? Nicodemus never quite got it as far as we see. The Samaritan woman at the beginning, she didn't get it either. But she said, this has got to be the guy. And then by the end of chapter 4, many in the town, and I firmly believe the woman was one of them, were believing that he was the Messiah. Not believing that he was a man from God that could do tricks or heal people or anything like that. But this is beyond that. This is the Christ the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You see the difference between their belief. I hope so. So my question, who are you? Are you Nicodemus? Are you embarrassed by Jesus? Are you embarrassed for people to know that you're a Christian. And I'm not asking you if you're embarrassed to come to church. I'm not asking you if people know you come to church. Heck, 50% of Texas is in church every Sunday morning, but I'm confident 50% of Texas is not saved. So just because you come to church, as far as I'm concerned, that is the same as Nicodemus helping out with the body in the middle of the night. 
Yeah, you can hide in church. Are you embarrassed? Is your life such that people have no doubt where you stand? We, Ed and I, have been getting in trouble on Facebook this week. Um, there, I used to do this. I will still post, quote, inflammatory things on Facebook and Twitter. Etta never has. She gets out of that, and, and I've learned I don't argue. If I post something that I believe, I'm not going to argue when somebody comes back because you cannot argue, you know, typing in paragraphs. It just doesn't work. Um, but I have posted stuff before that I thought, well, you know, people aren't going to like this, but it needs to be said. Etta doesn't. But there is a movie that has come out called Magic Mike. If you don't watch TV much, you may not have seen the previews for it. It's a man stripper movie, to be quite honest. That's the whole point. I doubt it has a plot. I doubt it has much dialogue. I don't care. It's about male strippers. And the number of Christian, they say, and I'm not saying that, to, to deny their salvation, they say they're a Christian, I don't know them well enough to, to comment. They say they're a Christian, and yet to see the posts on Facebook about how they can't wait to go see the movie. Had one friend uh, who actually said, underneath the picture of Matthew McConaughey with his shirt off, why did they even put plot and dialogue? Well, at least she was honest. That movie is nothing but lady porn, period. That's all it is. It is not there to, to, to teach you a, a lesson of history like maybe the Patriot. It's not even there to entertain uh, just for the, the, the fun factor. I mean, very few movies are, are acceptable these days anyway, but there are some out there that you can go see and you don't have to worry about being... Uh, 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 disloyal to Christ to sit there and watch it. But this, for us, this week was an issue. And we posted. And we got, Etta in particular, got some nasty things said to her about it. For standing up for Christ-likeness. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power unto salvation. Are we going to stand up? Are we Nicodemus? Are we self-righteous? Now, in my standing up for Christ-likeness, I am not self-righteous. I stand up for Christ-likeness because I know I'm not. I preach these messages because I know that I don't have it either. I don't stand up here as one who's got the things figured out, be like me. In my head, I'm sitting right there. In my head, I'm wearing flip-flops. And my toes are getting crushed. Because, see, you get to hear it for 45 minutes. I get to hear it all week. And I get to see my imperfections vividly and boldly and know that I have to stand up here. Troy asked me this morning, you don't sin, do you? And I said, yeah. Well, you don't do it on purpose. Yeah. He knew he wasn't just prodding me. He knew. I don't have it either. But I know where it is. And so, unlike Nicodemus, who comes understanding that he was a great teacher of, of, of the faith, 
a religious leader, a pillar in the church. We come, I pray, just the opposite. And are you dependent on signs? Just like the Jews, just like Nicodemus, are you dependent? Our signs are different, y'all. We don't look at healings and say, oh, he's the Christ. We look at our sinner's prayer and say, I'm good. We look at our church attendance and say, I got it. We look at the words we say. We look at how we cover up what we do and say, I'm all right. And that's not the way it works. Or are you the Samaritan woman? Are you open about your faith? Are you willing to take the disgusting comments? And I mean disgusting comments that were made on Facebook about my wife. Are you willing to do that? No matter how it hurts? Are you willing... Are you willing to be ever conscious and repentant of your sin? See, salvation is about repentance. I know we sin. I know we have things that we like to do that are sins. I know we have things that tomorrow we'll do it again. And the next day we'll do it again. But what is your reaction to that sin? Is it, oh, well, who cares, whatever. I like it, it doesn't matter. Because that's what we're getting about this movie. It's just a movie. It doesn't mean anything. Except that you're lusting. Except that you are telling everybody that reads your post that Christ does not call you to purity. He tells, you, tells them that you are called to do whatever the heck you want to do, and it doesn't matter what God's Word says. That's what you're telling people. Or is, are you ever conscious about how you fail to live up to God's standard? And are you dependent on Jesus? Am I dependent on Jesus? Do I come into this church in this town with all of my ideas and think, this will get them and this will get them and this will get them? Or am I coming here saying, God, I got nothing but you to give them? Am I dependent on Jesus? And I'm sorry, but I'm not done yet. What I'm not saying... I'm not saying you should be confused about your salvation. Okay, please understand me. John chapter 20, verse 31. All of this, remember, is coming from John. I'm getting it from him. And he says, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. John was not writing to confuse anybody. He says, I want you to know. I want you to believe. But I want you to have the right belief. What I'm not saying, I'm not saying that if you sin, you aren't saved. Do not hear me say that. Don't leave here telling people that's what I said, because I'm going to show them the DVD and say that is not what I said. And I told them that's not what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you made a profession of faith as a child, that you aren't saved. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that you were too young. I'm not saying that you didn't understand, so you're not saved now. That is not what I'm telling you. And I'm not saying that you have to earn your salvation by good works. I'm not saying that if you do not live a certain way, you aren't saved. I'm not saying that in order to keep your salvation, that you have to do certain things. That is not what I'm saying. Jesus Christ keeps your salvation, not you. What I am saying, 
I am saying that if you trust in your signs, your prayer, if you trust in your aisle walk, you may not be saved. If you trust in the words you say, I'm saying if your life is not a struggle toward Christ-likeness, you may not be saved. Are you, do you struggle with the fact that you sin? Or is it just, well, whatever. Do you, are, you, are you mocked because you won't do things that you, you know that you shouldn't? Is, is church, is God something that orbits your life and you allow in when it's convenient? When something better is not going on? When, when, when the, the, I don't know, when it's not easy or when it is easy, okay, today, yeah, I'll go to church. Oh, yeah, I'll be involved. Yeah, because... Or is God the center of your life so that he is the focus and everything else orbits that? Are you committed to the world? Or rather, what I'm saying is, if you are committed to the world, if you love praise from men and that is your focus and that is your goal, then you may not be saved. What I am definitely saying is if you have never asked Jesus into your heart, if you have never trusted Jesus to be your personal Lord and Savior, if you have never cried to Jesus to forgive you for the anarchy and rebellion in your life, not where you messed up, not where you made a mistake, anarchy and rebellion against the God who made you and called you to holiness, then I am absolutely saying you are not saved. That is what I'm saying. John didn't leave it there, and neither am I. You can make your belief real. Get in the pool. Don't just test the water. Jump in. I cannot tell you what that feels like. Only you, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, can examine your heart and say, Am I saved? Do I have a belief in things about Jesus? Or do I believe so that I know my salvation. That's between you and God, but this is how. There are other ways. This is one way. And I don't mean other ways to Jesus. There are other ways to think about it. But this is the way I like to do it. Admit that you're a sinner, and not just admit, but repent. That means those things that you're doing now as a non-Christian, you don't do them when you get saved. And then when you do, you think, Dang it, I wasn't supposed to do that. God, forgive me. And you are striving for Christ-likeness. You repent and you turn around. Believe that Jesus is your only hope for salvation. Do you understand what Jesus did at the cross? Most of the time, I don't fully grasp it either. Don't worry about your understanding. Worry about your belief. Do you believe that Jesus is your only hope for salvation? And then does your life confess him? Your words are you scared to talk about Jesus? Do you, not, do you not allow yourself to live for Jesus in the public square? Then, let's go back to A. And then B, so we can get C. Today's your day to ask Jesus into your heart. 
Let's pray. Father, let us not be a church of, of wet toes, of people who are, are sticking the toe in just to get the temperature, but we do not jump in. Father, let us be a church of regenerated saints. God, a church of saved people. Work on the hearts this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what's he inviting you to do this morning? You've heard God's word, I tell you, almost every week. You do not open God's word. You do not hear him without him demanding a response. So what is your response? Do you need to accept Christ? Do you have a toe in, but you need to jump in? Have you jumped in, but you haven't told anybody? Are you still trying to be a secret Christian? Then I think you just got a toe in. We need to talk about that. Do you need to be baptized? Is God telling you your life is not a life of holiness and purity and Christ-likeness? He's telling you to come back to Him. Do you need to be used do you, by Him? Do you need to join our church? Be a part of a membership of people who are taking the gospel around the world. What is God telling you to do? Share it on your connection card. Come pray with me. Or come down front and give it to the Lord at this altar as they sing. Let's We've got revival coming. We have a God who wants to revive us. But we will never affect out there as long as people don't see a difference between what goes on in here and what's out there. I said at the beginning, I'm not trying to be mean. Y'all, I love you. I love your toes, but I love your souls more. So if I have to break the toes to get to the souls, I'll do it. Because until the souls are broken in here, we will never make a difference for Christ out there. And that's what we are called to do. So know that this is my heart aching for you, for me, and for the lost of this world. So let's, let's go. Let's stand.